And, and, and what we mean by gospel is just the central message of what it means to be a Christian, right? And, and we're going to talk about that in more detail later. But Christianity spread then, and it spreads now in the same way by ordinary human beings who live an ordinary life, but they live their lives in such a way that it bears witness to an extraordinary gospel. Uh, so if you're with me, we're going to look at how it happens today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. And I would invite you guys to stand with me if you're able while we read from God's Word. So this is what it says, starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent no one. Father, I pray that as we study your word today, that you would make it come alive before us in a way that transforms us. If there are those today among your children, I pray that we would listen closely to your word, that we'd be challenged by it, we would repent where we need to repent and be encouraged where we need encouragement. Um, but if there are those today who don't yet know you, I pray that they would see your gospel clearly and that they would fall in love with you and come to you and receive forgiveness and healing. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So how do our lives as Christians bear witness to the gospel? And I'm going to give it to you up front. If you look at your bulletin, you should see the outline. Essentially, this is, as we're reading from 1 Thessalonians, this is the main point. Your way of life is a witness to the gospel. So therefore, grow in holiness, love, and virtue. So how do I get that? So look with me again at verse, uh, at verse 10. Notice that verse 10 ends in this way. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. But to do what? More and more. And if you were here last week, you'll know that Pastor Joe preached uh, a sermon, and within that sermon, you see that repeated phrase again. For in verse three, it says this: "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." Right, and 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 as it is talking about your sanctification, it it uses that phrase again, more and more. Right, what is sanctification? It's a it's a big word we use as Christians. Essentially, this is the definition I get. It is the process where God makes you to be more like Jesus more and more until Jesus comes again and completes the work finally. All right? That is sanctification. And if you are a Christian, you are being sanctified by God. And so that's the first thing. When you are a Christian, you should be doing these things more and more. But doing what things? Well, your sanctification includes, firstly, holiness. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time on this because it's not from the passage. If you, uh, if you want to know more, I encourage you to go back, listen to last week's passage. But one of the first things about sanctification to become more like Jesus is that you are made more holy. And especially what Paul is talking about here is your holiness in regards to your sex life. Well, why? Well, because every age it seems to have a broken sexuality. And so it is a radical thing to live 
joyfully in the sexuality that God gave us. In other words, between a man and his wife, where they enjoy this gift fully, but not outside of that, where it can wreak pain and heartache onto them. That's a radical thing in any culture, but it's what God calls you to. If you are a Christian, then what God calls you to do is to not have sex outside of marriage and in marriage to enjoy it fully, to enjoy your spouse. That's a thing that is radical to this world. Just by doing that, you're already bearing witness to something different, right? People look at your life and go, why? Why don't you enjoy these things, right? Why do you put seemingly limitations on it? And our answer is this, essentially, that we have been bought by Jesus. Our life is different because of Jesus, right? And, and that means that we live according to his commands. But it's not just not just commands randomly. God gives these commands for our good and for our joy. And we can live this way because Jesus has forgiven us for our sins and give us power to grow in sanctification and holiness. That leads us into verse 9, where we're picking up today. What else are we to grow in? Well, let me read again. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and one of the things that is repeatedly said throughout the New Testament is this, that your witness, the way that people can tell that you are a Christian is when they look at you, they see how you love your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters, right? Jesus says that when people look at that way you love them, what they see is the way that Jesus has loved you. There's a direct correlation. In other words, the way we love as Christians, what we are saying is that whatever we do, we only do it because we've first been given something. So the only way we can love one another as Christians is because we have been given this overwhelming love by Jesus, which is the gospel, right? The gospel is this. Human beings who were made to enjoy God and to bring glory to him all of our days instead chose to rebel against God. And because of that rebellion, we brought all sorts of evil and violence and disease and hatred onto ourselves and spread it throughout the world. But God, who loved us so much, even when we were rebelling against him, sent his very son to enter into humanity, become a human being himself, to take the full punishment for all the evil we have ever done onto himself, and to give us a new life in him if we just trust him. It's this free forgiveness where if we just trust Jesus, he will be completely forgiven for all the evil that we have ever said, thought, desired, or done. And not only that, Jesus then begins to repair the harm that we have done in our sinful lives. There's all these incredible stories in the Bible and among fellow Christians where after they become a Christian, it didn't erase what they did in the past, but Jesus began to take what they did in the past and redeem it and provide healing and wholeness, and life. God freely offers that to us because he loves us so much. Therefore, if you are a Christian who has received this infinite, overwhelming love, how could you not pass that on to others? Right? If you are a Christian who's received this incredible grace of God that, it, that you've done nothing in yourself to earn or merit, in fact, you've done everything you can 
right? To rebel against God and to run from his grace, and yet he gives it to you anyway. How can you not give your brother, forgive your brother or sister in Christ when they've said something to hurt you? Or they've done something that makes you feel excluded? You, you can't, you can't, not if you're truly realizing the love that comes from Jesus. And yet that type of love and forgiveness that is should be among Christians is rare in the outside world. Why? Because when someone does something to offend you, right, you should stand up for yourself, right? That's the, that's the message in the world, because no one else will. If you don't stand up for yourself, no one else will. And yet as Christians, what we say is when our enemy strikes us, we turn the other cheek. When they insult us, we respond with grace and love. When they do something against us, we forgive them. That is not possible unless we realize how much we've been forgiven first. And it's a radically different thing that by living in this way bears witness to the gospel. Right? He goes on, though. This is how we treat each other. But the Bible also has something to say about saying the way we treat those who are not Christians, right? Among Christians, we love one another, we forgive one another, we offer grace, and we receive grace from one another. That's one of the benefits of being in a church, is being put amongst people that you normally, in other circumstances, wouldn't get along to and learning to love them well anyways, right? Because as you do that, you grow and are trained and transformed and sanctified. You learn to give grace and receive grace. But how do we treat outsiders? Well, this is where we're going to pick up. So um, in verse uh, in verse 15, it says this. For this we declare to you um, by a word from the Lord that... Uh, sorry, not 15. I jumped way ahead. So ver <laughs> verse, uh, uh, verse 10 says this. For it, that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. For what purpose? Why are you supposed to live this way? It says this in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this is, we live this way so that those outside of Christianity look at our way of life and find it desirable. Don't find it offensive. Now I want to put this in context. So this church, the Thessalonian church, we see them being formed in Acts chapter 17. So Paul goes to Thessalonica. He shares the gospel among the Jews, some tiles as well. And when that happened, the Jews who did not, Paul was receiving an audience. And so they go into the marketplace. They stir up a mob to chase him down. And if they hadn't been stopped, they would. Have, if Paul hadn't snuck out at that point, they would have probably killed him. And so Paul leaves the city. And they're so upset that Paul escaped that they bring the people who uh, let Paul stay in their house up to the market, and they kind of put them on parole. It says from then on they're being watched. Right. So this is the church. And then Paul goes somewhere else. They actually find out that Paul's in another city nearby and run. They don't just worry about him being in their city. They go to other cities and hunt him down. Right, this is Paul, who every city he goes in, he seems to be causing a stir and a controversy and being arrested or beaten or someone else. That Paul is saying to aspire to a quiet life. All right? And he's saying this knowing 
that these people weren't just content to leave Paul alone, let people believe what they wanted. They actually went to other cities hunting him down. And yet he says that amongst those people, so that your way of life isn't of disrepute, you should not be busybodies. Does that strike you as, as kind of ironic and, and almost hypocritical that that uh, your that their way of life might be taken as them being busybodies when these same people went and hunted down Paul because of what he was teaching? I want you to feel kind of the irony and the tension as he is saying this. Essentially, what Paul is saying here, though, and, and why he's saying this is, you should, as much as you can, as far as you are able, eliminate everything in your life that is offensive to outsiders so that when they are offended by you, they are only offended by the gospel. All right? Once again, when they are offended by you, they are only offended by the gospel. You see, Paul's saying this so they can avoid persecution, they can avoid causing a stir or controversy. Everywhere he goes, that happens. What he's saying is that your way of life should be so dedicated that if people find you offensive, what they find offensive is the gospel. They can't find something else in your life to dismiss the gospel. Right? If you were a and this is how it shapes out today, right? Uh, we have people who, because they're passionate about the gospel, they'll preach the gospel. That's good, right? People are offended by the gospel. That's still okay. But what happens is they're like, you know what? I'm just telling them the truth. And what they mean by telling them the truth is they're being a loudmouth jerk. Yes, everything they say is true, but the way they're saying it is confrontational. And what people do is they, they dismiss the person, not because of the gospel, but because the person's a jerk. And what the Bible is saying here is you don't get to do that. You're a follower of Christ. Do everything in your power so that when people are offended at you, they're offended by the gospel, and not because you're a jerk or a loudmouth, not because you're being lazy or a busybody. They should look at your life and see it transformed by the gospel. They're still going to be mad at you, but let them be mad at the gospel not because you are, in fact, living a life of sloth or busybodiness or being a jerk, right? And the reason I called this, um, as you look through, so grow in holiness, that would make sense. Grow in love, that makes sense. Why did I use the word virtue? Virtue is this idea of not just doing good things, but actually being good. And it's this inside-out transformation. It's not just... It's not just speaking truthfully, it's being a truthful person. And so this idea is, in the scripture, is that we are called not just to follow God's law, we're called to be transformed from the inside out. That's why Jesus showed up. You see, God gave the law in the Old Testament. Yes, he expects human beings to follow it, but we are unable because we're sinful, and we need Jesus to transform us from the inside out. It's not just that we do evil things, it's that we desire evil things. It's not just that we don't do good, it's that we despise the good. And so we need Jesus to send us his spirit to transform us from the inside out. And when we do that, it's not that just that we live a quiet life, but begrudgingly. No, it's that we aspire to that. It is our desire that we live in a quiet way, that we work with 
our hands, that we mind our own affairs. And when we do that, what type of life are we talking about? We're talking about a life that is working hard to remove obstacles from our neighbors so that they can clearly see the gospel and not be offended by us. This is how it shook out in the Thessalonians. If you read 2 Thessalonians, what you'll find is many of the people took Paul's teaching that Jesus would someday return, and it would be soon, as like, oh, well, that means that we need to focus on just the spiritual thing, and we don't have to worry about the everyday, like, boring stuff, doing a job, working with our hands, manual labor. Like, we can just be super spiritual, right? And today, there are many of us who have a similar opinion, right? We look at our jobs and we're like, man, if Jesus just let me do something where I could work in the ministry. And we discount. We're like, my job, it's it's my job. I'm just working a factory job. I'm just working with my hands. How does that bring glory to Jesus? But the beautiful thing about the Bible is that that's not the way it talks about our work. The way the Bible talks about our work is that whatever job you do, apart from sin, like if you're a bank robber, obviously this doesn't count. But whatever job you do, that job is worship and service to God. If you are a Christian, the job that you do, you're not doing for your boss, you're doing for God. The very act of work is good in and of itself. We were created to work. All twisted and corrupted work so that it became labor and toil. But work in and of itself is good. And so when you work, you do it for God. And so if you work hard and you work joyfully, that is an act of worship. Yes, it is true. Oftentimes when we talk about work, it's like whatever you do, it's an opportunity to witness to your coworkers, which is true, and it is good, and you should. But just the work in and of itself is a good thing. The work in and of itself is service to God. The work in and of itself is worship to God. It's done joyfully, right? That has transformed the world. You see, we are so used to the culture where hard work and manual labor is held up as it's mostly a good thing. There are some who still kind of look down on it. But in the West, this is a good thing, right? Well, you should know in the ancient world, it was not. Manual labors were looked on as kind of just lower, like lesser, and that working your hands was shameful, right? And in addition to that, humility was also shameful. In the ancient world... Pride was a virtue, and humility was not. It was, a, it was a sin, essentially. Like There's nothing good about being humble. What has transformed that, that in the West we view those as good things, is the Scripture. You see, th- this is not Paul saying, conform to the virtues of your age so you don't offend the people around you. No, he's saying, live a godly life, and that's going to offend the people around you, but as far as you can, make sure what they're offended on is God you to work hard and in the medieval world there was this conflict where christians had forgotten this teaching for a while and so they held up these two ways of life one you could be a minister you could work in the church or you could be a monk and those were the holy holy people right the super christians the spiritual saints and then you had the other people the the lesser people who they made it to heaven but mostly because of the work that the holy people were doing and they did the stuff like worked on a farm, did construction work. They weren't they didn't really know God that well. They were just God God brought them along graciously, but it's not anything good. Well, what happened was 
Protestant Reformation. If we are the inheritors, I came along and said from the Bible, no, every work apart from sinful work is good work, service to God, worship to God. And every Christian should know the scriptures and have the opportunity to be ministers for God. There's no divide between the holy people and the lesser people. No, there are only God's people and those not yet God's people are not God's people, right? And so God's people should do whatever they do, whatever work they find themselves, whatever place they find themselves in, to glorify God and reach their neighbors, right? And so, what does that mean for us? That means for us that we should work hard at our jobs. Whatever job you find yourself in, you should work hard and you should work joyfully. And this and that, you should not be a busybody. You should not be involved in yourself in other people's lives and you should not should be gossiping, right? Because guess what happens when you stop working and you have a lot of free time on your hands, right? This is what was happening in Thessalonians. These people were like, I'm going to be super spiritual, so I'm not going to work in these secular jobs. And then on their free time, what did they end up doing? became busybodies, meddling in people's lives and spreading gossip because they weren't working hard, right? And, and Paul is rebuking or, or pushing them away from that, this, this misunderstanding. And in addition to that, what else happens when you're not working? You have no way of supporting yourselves. So these people who, thought, who were claiming super spirituality were instead depending on the hard work of their brothers and sisters to support them. This should not be. By the way, the church is incredibly generous, and there are some people who, who sometimes can't, for whatever reason, life circumstances, injury, other things, can't always need. And the church is to step in and to love them and to provide anything is lacking. That is good. That is part of the grow more and more in love. And I feel like I can echo Paul when he says, by the way, God himself has taught you, and you guys are doing this. This is amazing. This is not a rebuke. This is... A, encouragement. You guys have done it well. We've seen in our own church, people step up when people have lost jobs and help them out for a time so they can get a new one. They had an unexpected expense and we stepped up and helped them out. You guys know what it means by God to love one another. Do so more and more, right? But for those of you who see that generosity and take advantage of that generosity, what Paul's telling you is that it's not good, right? We see this show up. We see the people who are like, ah, my job is just terrible. My job is, is miserable. I can't honor God in my job. It's not a sinful job. And so they'll quit it. They'll try to find some vague, more spiritual job. Well, no, work your job. If, the, if you get a chance to have a better job, awesome. I'm not saying you can't, but don't just quit your job and stop working because you don't think that it's a holy enough or good enough job. No, work hard. Pull your weight. Don't be a free lifter is essentially what it's saying. And by the way, this comes up for me when discipling teens a lot because I know that that's, that's a symptom for young men. This is one area of the fall that affects us. You either have one or two problems from it. You have this overly aggressive and violence that you need to rebuke where they turn the strength God has given them for protection and care and provision and they've twisted it into something, or you have apathy in them. These are kind of the two things that often show up. And so you have young men who are like, I kind of like not having any responsibilities and not having to pay my bills. And 
I kind of like, I don't even have schoolwork at the moment. I, I like this age of college, the college age, right? Where it's like, I, I enjoy this. I have incredible freedom and no responsibilities. And the Bible's teaching to that is no, to grow up, to be mature, to carry your own weight. Don't depend upon the generosity of the others. And in fact, in 2 Thessalonians, uh, <laughs> to, it, it it, it even rebukes those who are being generous to them. And it says, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? It's one of the harshest teachings. It's an incredibly hard teaching. And that's not to say those who can't work. That's saying those who can but are choosing not to out of laziness or whatever other reason. It, it, it's fighting against this concept. But why? Well, ultimately, it's about our witness. Right? When people look at us, they see Jesus. They just do. That's part of the name, right? You are a Christian. You literally bear the name of Christ. And so when people see you, for better and worse, they see Jesus. Either they see his gospel transformation and a life of diligent, joyful work where you're growing in love and holiness and virtue, or you're lying about Jesus and the way that you are being lazy and taking advantage of others and not loving and forgiving as you should. Your way of life matters, Christian, because when others look at you, they see Jesus. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And by the way, how on earth did Christianity spread through the Roman Empire among the poor and the poverty to the point where a majority of the Roman Empire within a couple hundred years were Christian? This was how. It was a way of life that admittedly confronted the culture's values. They were told to be holy, where the culture value was to enjoy pleasure as much as you could find it. It was confrontational, and they were hated because of it. And yet, every human being within them, even when they fight it, know that they are broken, and know that this is causing them pain, and desire a better way. The same thing with love. Everything in us fights this urge to forgive those who harm us grant mercy when we've been granted pain, to love even when we're not being loved back. And yet, all of us know this is what we were made for. They see that our own hatred towards other comes back and harms us. And they desire a better way. They desire the ability to love, whether they admit it or not. So it is confrontational because you may wonder, why are people so offended by these things. One of the things I, I was talking with the youth the other day about what it means to uh, love Jesus with your sexuality. But one of the interesting things is if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, most people assume that you're sleeping with them already. Because that's a weird thing in our culture. And, and when you tell them you're not because you're following Jesus, they, most of them find it kind of weird and bizarre and strange. That's good. That's okay, by the way. That's good. But there's a few of them who are actually mad at you. You're are you mad at you? Are you mad at me? This has nothing to do with you. Why are you upset about how I'm choosing to spend my relationship? Here's the reason why, though, and what I give comfort to you. The reason why is because your way of life is saying that there is something better than just giving in to the desire for pleasure at every moment. That there is something better and waiting, and there is something better in living a life of holiness and purity. And that is offensive because someone who's dove in, who's enjoying their pleasures, temporary pleasures, they've 
committed their whole life to that. And your way of life threatens their very existence. That's why people get so upset about it. Because your way of life is witnessing that there is something better there, something more fulfilling, something that brings you more joy. So if you follow Jesus, if you live the way of life that he commands us to live, and not just begrudgingly, but joyfully, your very life confronts the values of this world, and therefore it witnesses to the gospel. And that is what we are called to do. This is the way of life we are called to. And so my encouragement for you in your own life this week, look at yourself. Are you growing in each of these areas? Right? Because we're not just called to be static, we're called to grow. Do you have actual stories where you can point to and be like, you know, I've, and by the way, one of the ones I constantly bring up, I look at myself just a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and my speech was far harsher. I actually know the moment it, it is transformed. If you're in my youth group, you know I was having to teach from Proverbs on how you speak to one another wisely. And again and again, it talked about speaking with gentleness and truth. And, and er, yeah, Eric Riggins, no, he struggled with it with me. And we're just like, I don't like this teaching, but it's what we're commanded right? And, and so wrestling with the Bible, I was transformed. Do you have similar stories where Jesus, because if you have the Holy Spirit, you are being transformed. So look at them. Where are you being transformed? Where do you still need to grow in love, holiness, and virtue? Spend some time this week asking God to transform you so that those around you who don't yet know Jesus can see that and give glory to Jesus. That's, my, that's what I'm asking you guys to do this week. Russell through this today. But if you are not a Christian and you're hearing this and, and part of you is like, I want nothing to do with this way of life, I understand that. It is a radically different way of life to grow in holiness, love, and virtue. And it seems like a life that you don't want. I, I understand that. Here's my challenge to you, to ask you this. Has your nonstop pursuit of pleasure in your own self and receiving love over giving love, has it brought you happiness? Has it brought you joy? If it is not, then my challenge is to turn to the scripture and look at this better way. Jesus calls us to die to our old way of life and to receive a new life. You see, when we give up our old way of life to follow Jesus, he doesn't just leave us at the death. He gives us a new life that he has gained in his own death and resurrection. And his new life that even though it seems to counter all your inner desires, that actually gives you new desires. That doesn't just give you temporary pleasure, but eternal and lasting joy and happiness. So that's my challenge for you today. But uh, I'm going to end with this thought as we read through it. And, and I'm going to read through it one more time, end in prayer, and we're going to continue worship. So, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that it is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father, I pray that you would transform our lives here at this church so that our very lives tap the beauty and the goodness possible. Let's not rest until we repented of our sins and turned to you for healing. And if there are those there who haven't yet received the gospel, I pray that you show it to them clearly. 
let them be offended or let them be drawn to you, but let them not away without responding to your gospel and reasoning.